I'd like to welcome everyone to a, another in our series of self-empowerment discussions. Today, we're going to talk about something that I first heard in a Joseph Campbell uh, program on myth, and he talked about bliss. Now, that's not something that I grew up with, and I don't know if you were familiar with it, but then I began to think, well, what is bliss? What does it mean? Now, an Easterner can certainly tell you because it's more, it's more conducive to the way they have been conditioned to believe in, but we're not. We're not into bliss. And then I said, well, what keeps us from our bliss? What manifests bliss? And I just started to understand more than what we have to do is what we have to undo. It's like health. There's two ways of approaching health. One is to take a lot of supplements and to do a lot of things that you would normally do, and another is not to do the things that destroy health. And I found that people will live just about as healthy if they do not do things that are toxic as those who do toxic things and then try to compensate by detoxifying and supplementation. So if you didn't smoke and didn't drink and you didn't eat sugar and didn't eat red meat and if you didn't drink fluoridated water and you didn't drink alcohol and if you didn't eat processed foods, you're going to be about as healthy as someone who did and then took supplements trying to undo that. And with that same concept, I took a look at bliss and says, all right, why isn't bliss just a natural state? It's like purity. No baby is ever born vulgar. No baby is ever born with a negative attitude. So through time, fear, psychoses, neuroses, depressions, anxieties, limitations, biases, prejudices, all of these are conditioned responses. And anything that can be conditioned can be unconditioned. So I'm going to talk about embracing our bliss. That's our discussion. I'm going to do it around a series of questions, and the questions are meant for you. They're meant for you to try to explore how you would respond to them. I'll give you some of my own insight, but that's only my own particular insight, and it is no more valid than yours. And from that insight, hopefully you'll start to think about it. And when you get a quiet moment, you can reflect and you can say, all right, what's that mean? It's just like this evening before our discussion, uh, Fran here was uh, mentioning to me that it just came to her after re-reviewing a segment in the book on Who Are You Really, which is my book about life energies, that she accepted that she was an, uh, a creative assertive. And as such, her need to hold on to pain from the past is different than someone else's who can have pain, let it go. And I found that's true of a whole group of people, and those people happen to be creative, and there's a reason for that, and I'm going to get into a little bit a little later. But there's reasons that we do things, but there's also the potential once we understand why we do something, then to ask ourselves in the future, do we want to do that all over again? Do we need to do it all over again? Why do we do something? The first issue is this. Life is impermanent. We suffer from the emptiness of not connecting with our real self because we feel that if we've been faithful for so long to the idea of permanence. Now think of that for a moment. 
thus living in the moment, betrays us in the end. Did you get that? No. You didn't. Why? <laughs> Why does it betray us? Get in the moment. <laughs> now listen to what I said, because it's not a trick question. I'm going to go through it and I'm going to break it into sections. These thoughts come to me when I'm in my meditation. I prepare for, for doing a discussion like this where I sit quietly for hours on end and I ask a question and then I allow myself to have all these answers flood in and the answer that finally registers where I feel it, then I set that aside. And that's how I build these, these lectures. Let me go over this again. Life is impermanent. We all agree with that, right? But that's not what we were believing earlier in life. A teenager, a young kid doesn't believe life is impermanent because they have not really had to come face to face with that impermanence, except when their turtle dies, their dog dies, you know, the cat gets run over, a grandfather, grandmother dies, and they don't really understand why. And they're told what's happening, but it's still not really connecting. There's sorrow, there's, there's grief, but then right next, there's, there's buoyancy right back again. But the older we get, the louder that issue resonates in our mind because we become a part of that impermanence. We embrace our impermanence somewhere in our path. It's just we never know when. Will it be by a car accident? Will it be by a natural cause? Will it be by a stroke? Heard you talking about a stroke earlier today. Well, you know in that moment you didn't think you were going to have a stroke, right? No, but then you had a stroke, and then suddenly you realize how tenuous life can be. Like that, it can be over. And if we don't want it to be over, then we, we, we bear the burden of feeling betrayed because we didn't desire that end. Now, because life is impermanent, we suffer from the emptiness of not connecting with our real self because we feel that we've been faithful for so long to the idea of permanence. You want a permanent home, a permanent job, a permanent relationship. Up until this newest generation, everything was meant to be permanent. If you were a man, Charlie, and you were working in the 1950s or 60s, and I assume you were, right? What kind of work did you do, Charlie? Engineer. All right, as an engineer, an engineer uses a left-brain linear approach to life, right? You do calculations, and calculations are supposed to be permanent. If you're going to build a building, you have to have some permanent designs, right? The values that you accepted from the paradigm, what I call, I've changed the concept, I've heard paradigm so much, I've changed the term in my vocabulary to the circle of the known. Because I think it's, I think calling it the circle of the known, as you'll hear in a few, little bit, gives it more, more of a sense of, of what it means rather than paradigm. Paradigm comes from the Greek meaning paradigm or pattern behavior, kind of removed from our vocabulary. We were taught, I was taught, I'm sure many of you were taught, if not most, to find one relationship, right? Have a home and, and live there forever. Work at a job. Be obedient to the rules of society, and you will be rewarded for that obedience. Is that correct or not? Right. Correct. Okay. My parents did it. And your grandparents did it, and others did it. And then one day, you see that 
is not permanent because your parents die or you lose a job, they're downsized, and you're thinking, wait a second, I gave you all my trust, I gave you everything, why am I not, why am I not staying forever in this job? During the 19, right up until the 1970s, most people took a job thinking that was it. In fact, you were considered irresponsible if you changed jobs. I mean, if you had more than two jobs in a lifetime, people would question, what's wrong with him? Right? Now you can have two jobs a week. <laughs> so now imagine with our parents' generation and the baby boomers, at least most baby boomers, remember most baby boomers are not the upper mobile baby boomers. That's only about 10%. That means 90% of the baby boomers didn't participate in any great economic bonanza, weren't out there career jumping and job jumping. They still did the nuts and bolts work. They did the functionary work of society. And change to them is always met with resistance. There's a certain type of person that embraces change and others resist. Permanency resists change. You can't have permanency and change. The trouble is we know in our hearts that nothing's ever the same. We know that things evolve and change. The deepest, the deepest pool still stagnates if there's no circulation, no movement. We know our muscles atrophy if there's no movement. We know the brain cells atrophy if you don't think and challenge it. And yet the last thing that most people want, once they're comfortable in what they're doing, is discomfort. And discomfort is change. And that's why so many people know they could do better, know what they should change, but won't because of the discomfort. Now, one of the problems with the paradigms is that when you're told that, you know, we have a permanent this and permanent that, and you wake up one day and realize you're not, but you've already given your loyalty to that. And hence, your loyalty creates an emptiness. It's like paying allegiance to something that itself is not legitimate. You're going through the motions of being legitimate, of honoring something, but unfortunately, it's not really honoring you. And so there's a disconnection. That's what I mean. And so then, we're faithful to the ideal of permanence, but life isn't. And life's always going forward. You look in a mirror one day. Any of you ever look in the mirror one day and you just kind of get sad? <laughs> <laughs> liar, liar. There's a sadness when you look and you've got a picture on a mantle that's, you know, 10 years younger and you think, what's wrong with this picture? It's supposed to be permanently young. And then that's the loneliness. And that's where we feel the betrayal. But when you live in the moment, when you're really in the moment, and you accept the moment as not being permanent, then you don't feel betrayed. And that leads us to our second issue. And the second issue is this. Which of your feelings don't you like? Because how you live will allow you to either create a positive feeling or negative feeling. Do you not like anger or worry or jealousy or envy or fear? 
because once you've established that there's a feeling that you don't like, then you have to pay attention. How did I end up manifesting? Why do I get angry? What makes me angry? How often do I get angry? What do I do when I am angry? Is it something constructive or destructive I do with my angry? Or why am I envious? Am I envious because I'm jealous? Do I not feel that what I have or what I am or what I think or what I, what I, what I could do is equal to someone else? Am I always comparing myself against others? And why should I do that? Where did that come from? Why can't I just accept that whatever I am and whatever I can feel, that's me. It may be more or less than you, but that's you. I'm not living your life. I can't. And therefore, I shouldn't emulate your life. I can't. You're the one who has to emulate your life. But the trouble is, we don't look at how we get these things. How often do you use these emotions? And most importantly, what are the consequences of these emotions? Now think of it. When you use envy and you use fear and jealousy and worry and anger, there's a consequence always, first to yourself, because you stay attached to everything you create. So if you're worrying about someone, you're also the victim of that worry. If you're angry at someone, you're also the victim of your own anger. So everything that you try to displace out there, you automatically stay connected to. Now think you could have all those emotions in one day. None of those are constructive. How do you get that way? In part, it comes from not having the ability to look at life for what it is and people for who they are. And that gets us back to the circle of the known. I'm going to describe a little bit of this circle of the known. For years and years, I tried to communicate with physicians about what I experienced would help people. And my experience, coming from a very classical background in, in academia and, and study and research at the Institute of Applied Biology, um, was just like everybody else's in the sense that there's cause and effect. You know, if I'm counseling someone and I see that they've had all kinds of migraines, and if I suggest dietary changes and they take them and they no longer have the dietary uh, habit they had before and hence their migraines are gone, then there's a connection between diet and migraines. It's just basic. It's basic science. Cause and effect. Watch what happens. A good scientist has to observe objectively. Then a good scientist tries to understand what it is they've observed. Then they try to see if they can replicate that. And then if they can replicate it in a lot of different people, and then they try to disprove themselves, and when they can't, then they have something that's fairly objective science. And then medicine and other healing arts takes that and tries to incorporate that. A physician is not a medical scientist. There is no such thing as medical science. There's medicine and there's science. And then there's healing. And then there's prevention. We've tried to make it all seem like it's one. So one person says, eat this. Don't worry about that. You don't have to take vitamins. Uh, your mind does nothing to your, you know, disease, doesn't cause cancer. And suddenly we have this assurance, oh, okay, then I can think negative thoughts or I can be all these things. I can worry, angry, I can, you know, drink, smoke, moderation, meat, sugar, moderation, and nothing's going to happen to me. Yeah, nothing's going to happen. So my arthritis has nothing to do with diet. No, no, no way in the world. Now, why is it that if your doctor told you that, you would believe it, but if you came to me, and if I changed any part of that, your arthritis went away, you would still believe your doctor. 
And that was the rabbit trick I couldn't figure out. I could understand if you've never came to me, if you didn't know any of the things I know, if you've never seen what I could see, I could understand that. But it was hard for me to appreciate how you could deny your own reality because it happened time and again where someone would come to me, I would give them input, I'd give them advice, they would take it, they'd see a change, then they'd go back to the doctor and say, Doctor, look, I no longer have arthritis. I gave up dairy and wheat and meat and sugar and I took some glucosamine sulfate and vitamin C and silica and chondroitin sulfate. I feel great. And the doctor would say, it's nonsense. It's quackery. And they go, okay. And they'd go right back and back would come their arthritis. So then I'd meet these people occasionally, you know, and uh, I'd say, how you doing? Oh, I still got the arthritis. I said, but you were over your arthritis. I know, but it came back. <laughs> well, how'd it come back? I don't know. <laughs> well, did you stay on the diet? Well, my doctor says it's quackery. And you think, what's missing here? What's missing when I write a book? showing just in this one book of over a million references in the scientific literature, 25,000 peer-reviewed journals showing the healing therapeutic benefit of nutrients, send out 100,000 mailings to physicians and I get like 300 responses out of 100,000. If the doctor says, show us by our standards, our gold standards, show us, prove to us that you have information that's a quality, quality research done at a nice school like Harvard, MIT or whatever, publish it in a peer-reviewed journal, do a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study, and if it shows that, we'll take it. And then I realize they're not taking any of it. Because, and here's the big circle the known issue of the day, if it's not originated and it's not created in the circle of the known, by the authority figures in there who are artificially removed from everyone else by the assumption of power, because power is an illusion, is when you demand people give you attention because of your knowledge, facts, the information you've shared with them, the impression you've made, the illusion you've spun, the position that you have been established at in this artificial hierarchical order, and you are now, you are a leader of the known. You're an authority figure. And there's a very clear, very clear distinct, uh, distinction between those that are in a position of authority, generally people who have a certain level of education, because in their mind, if you have enough facts, then you have knowledge. And knowledge separates you from people who do not. And hence, you should be more revered and respected because of the knowledge those facts provide. So, Everybody looks then to have facts in an area. So the banker has his facts, the school teacher hers, the doctor hers, the religious scholar his or hers. So everybody has their facts, everybody creates their own little position of power. So even within the circle of the known, there, there's people always jockeying for attention. And it happens even in groups. So let's say one group is way up here, the dynamic aggressive life forces, the people that run industries and, you know, are the multinationals. And these people don't have to have any education. In fact, a study was done in the 1960s that showed only 5% of CEOs ever had college educations. So they didn't have to have facts from educational institutions to have power because they accumulated wealth 
And wealth at that point was assumed that if you were smart enough to get that wealthy, then you should be given the power. And the power then says, I'm the person you come to for any guidance. So then they became policy makers. And they would tell you anything. You never heard a policymaker saying, I'm sorry, I don't know. I, you know I'm really not lost. <laughs> Ask a politician anything. And as stupid as they are, they'll give you, you know, certainty of an answer, and though it's never right. So what happens is you have all kinds of structures. You have the people who can buy and sell everyone else. Then you have the people who learn, and they think, I earned it through learning, which is greater than earning it through money, so therefore I'm better than you. You made yours in the stock market. I made mine in university, or I made mine as this. And now you have the ego trying to distinguish that power from this power. And then within that group, you have people being for power. You have the life energies that are more quiet and just happy that they're able to maintain their comfort level by having their respect and no hassle. And then you have those that want to go further, those that are willing to exaggerate or be an exhibitionist within their field so that they say, all right, we're all surgeons, but I'm the best surgeon. And therefore, we start placing artificial values upon best. So if you belong to a certain university, you're considered, oh, number one at such and such. And then, then you, have, you have people looking and trying to find the alpha male and alpha female in every one of those little circles of power. But 80% of the people are not ever at any of those higher levels. In other words, they're never considered an authority person or an opinion person. No one ever asked for their counsel or input. They're way down here. Now the trouble is when you're way down here, you're given total certainty that every issue in life there is an answer for, but you have to come to these higher people for your answer. If you're confused about your faith, you have to go to the priest or the rabbi or the nun or whoever. And they have to be the intermediates. You can't go directly because you wouldn't know how to interpret your faith. You wouldn't know the dogmas, the rituals, the creeds, what they mean, how to, how to live by them. So they teach you this. So you take on that body of knowledge. As long as you're obedient, you're rewarded by being accepted. If you challenge it, first you're warned, then you're chastised, then you're threatened, then you're excluded, then you're punished in sequential order. So every single doctor, every single doctor in the United States that has come forward and said, if the point is to help my patient and I've done everything that my education said I should do and my patient's not getting better, then my education is what it's fault and the protocols I'm supposed to follow from that education are not helping the patient. So if the object is to help my patient, I must, I must, with all due respect, go outside the circle of the known to a circle of the unknown, <laughs> another circle, and find something else I can bring back in. That's not allowed. That's not tolerated. In fact, so great was that fear that that would be a contamination of the ideology, the power, the control, that you could be excluded, you could be thrown out of medicine if you brought anything back. As a result, if you communicated with a chiropractor, uh, if you gave a patient to a chiropractor or you 
counseled a patient of a chiropractor, you could lose your license. The AMA was that tough. Now, when you have generation after generation growing up and learning the same rituals, then the ritual is almost congenital. It's as if it's bred into you. You don't even question it anymore. It's a certain rite of passage. You, you accept that this is my position in society. I'm better than you because I'm this, or I'm that, or I'm this, or that. I own this, or I can live here. Therefore, you must always defer to me. Look at movie stars. Nothing they do is real. Right? It's all play. It's all images. And yet, if you're in line for a restaurant, they'll always get ahead of you. Uh, if you're waiting for a movie, they'll go ahead of you. Now, you should ask, why? What did you do to have a right to go ahead of us? Nothing. You don't see everybody doing that uh, because we have basic respect for it. You know, if we're all going to the same place, we should have respect that we all should get in and each in, its, each in the time, not these people. Power people assume that they are better because they are different. And what makes them different? Illusion. Because the one danger of being in the circle of the known is you never want to get too close to the people who you are advising because they'll see how impermanent and how common you really are. And you're not really that much different than they are. But they've got to give you the impression because they have the knowledge, it's sacred. You don't. Therefore, you're going to defer to them intellectually. They have insights. You don't. You'll defer to them. And so we deferred to the bankers to be wiser about money management. Until in the 1970s and 80s, they lost $500 billion in the savings loan. And they start making bad loans. Even today, even with Chesnia uh, being completely annihilated by the Russians, the president doesn't want to go hard. Let's not alienate Russia because we still have more money to give Russia. So it's organized crime can it and we'll never get it back. And you think, why? How can I see this? And the average citizen not. Because the average citizen is in the circle of the known. When you're in that circle of the known, you have to accept everything. You're not allowed the type of dissent that causes things to change. You can have your opinion, but it's not going to change anything. And as a result, virtually anyone in positions of power can get away with almost anything, and every institution can get away with anything, because who's going to challenge it? Prosecutors can engage in prosecutor, uh, prosecutorial misconduct and do every single day. They break the law. They commit crimes. They suborn perjury. They hide evidence from the defense. They harass uh, defense witnesses. They co-indict them, all illegal, but they get away with it because they're the power. And once you have the power, then you have the authority because with power always comes authority. And the average person has never used their power. So then you, you get down to where the average person is. And the average person says, well, if I've got cancer, the only thing I can do is ask the doctor in the group, you know, and you'll say, no, there are a hundred other ways you can prevent cancer. No, they said I had to have my breast removed uh, if I have the gene that causes it, or I have to take tamoxifen if I have the gene that causes it. And I say, but wait, are you aware that outside known, there's, there's ways of preventing breast cancer and treating it alternatively? And there are a lot of people who've done it. And they'll say, I can't do that because I won't belong. Belonging is the single greatest need 
the average person has, the need to belong. And with that comes the discomfort of being cast away, let go of, rejected. There's only a certain amount of tolerance that will be allowed before the doctor who uses an alternative therapy is punished and excluded, no matter what their former position. Look, we managed in our society to destroy the greatest scientist of this century. The Louis Pasteur of this century was a man named Andrew Ivey, well, Dean of Academic Affairs at the University of Illinois, great scientist, 2,000 citations in the scientific literature, but he supported an alternative cancer therapy called Carbiosin. It worked, but it was competition. It was destroyed and he was destroyed. People didn't come to his defense. People inside the known don't. Because once you're attacked, everybody backs off. Because you don't want to be attacked and you don't want to be excluded. Now I'll show you how this manifests. I'll show you how people don't think about this. At the height of the Vietnam War, less than 1% of the American population challenged it. At the height of the Civil Rights Movement, less than 1% of the blacks protested on behalf. You didn't see you didn't see 60 million blacks out there protesting, or 30 million blacks. You'd see 200, or 100, or 25. At the height of the women's movement, when women were asking other women, raise your consciousness, free yourself, under one half of 1% protested. There has never been an issue where more than about 1% of the population protests. The unions didn't protest the World Trade Organization in Seattle, and yet those agendas out there will directly impact on union jobs. Now what does it tell you when you can't find a cause to which people are willing to address, whether it's the environment or their own health? Less than 3% of the American population are vegetarians. And yet they know that it's bad for them to be eating meat. And I'm talking about even when something is known with negative consequences, people won't change. Because if you are not given permission to change, and if you're not told how to change by the people that you have trusted, the authority figures within the circle of the known, you won't do it. You have to get someone's permission because from early on in life we're told never do anything without permission. And never do it on your own because you're not smart enough or wise enough. And so we feel so vulnerable and so incomplete and we feel so non-essential that we become invisible. Now this breeds enormous anxiety. In the 1800s, if a woman complained, she could have her ovaries removed to get rid of, quote, hysteria. And it was done right routinely. Women were given opium that you could buy at any drugstore to calm her of her hysteria. So we took care of women by giving them lots of narcotic and taking out their ovaries and removing their clitoris frequently. Today, in the 1960s and 70s, we gave women Valium. Now we give Prozac, lithium, alcohol, gambling, shopping. Look at all the things you can do to sublimate your anger, your worry, your jealousy, your envy, and your fear. Men, we give you violent sports, pornography, we give you WrestleMania, and we give you boxing, ear-biting boxers, 
that we pay more money for one fight than all the Nobel Prize winners for peace in history. Now, what does that tell you about our values? See, you can say your values here, but when you act here, where's your value? It's where you do. You are what you do. So inside that circle, you know there's a better way, but you don't want to lose everything that was identified as a part of you. Now then when it comes to this alternative movement, when I look at an audience, I don't see any CEOs or celebrities or policymakers or physicians. I don't see any of the people who run the world in those hierarchical positions. None would come to this meeting. And why wouldn't they come to this meeting? Because Charlie or Rose or Karen, if they were sitting beside you as regular people, you would not recognize them. And that would make them insecure because the people who need that power are very insecure. They're simply masking their insecurity. You're here to examine your insecurity. You're here to strengthen yourself, and they think that success, money, power masks it all. It's a great facade and a great disguise. Because when you see someone of power, we're drawn to them because of the certainty of their strength. We never realize, are they strong in their character, or is it merely their, their, their capacity to exaggerate their needs? have more power and more success than what they need, which means they're really insecure, but we're never going to ask them that question. I once counseled a very famous actor, one of the most famous in the world, considered one of the greatest classical actors in history. And as he's sitting there and I'm talking to him and, and um, I was helping him dry out and detoxify, and this is like the tenth time he had gone off the wagon, First time when I had helped him, he hadn't done that. But he was getting awful close to it. <clears throat> and I said, why do you live in Hollywood? I have a friend who lives out there, and I go out there to visit my friend, and he's a producer, and all the people I meet at his house are just so superficial. It's just, there's nothing real about it. Nothing. And he said, you know why? One reason only. He said, if I lived in the average neighborhood where I'd be just as happy, people would walk down the street, see me walking down the street, talk with me, listen to me, and think, you're no different than I am. Then why are you so rich? Why are you so famous? He says, look, Gary, he says, look what I do each day here. No? He says, I do the same thing everybody else does until I have to go work, and then they see me up on a screen. I don't put the words in my mouth. The screenwriter does. I just act them out. He's in all other areas. I'm just like everyone else. And that's the way it is. He was at least honest about it. He was a very honest person. But he also was addicted to the comfort that all that gave him. And he didn't want to go back to where he was at the beginning of his career. Now, what's the difference in the bed you sleep in if you're happy and are going to get a good night's sleep because you're happy with yourself? If your sheets are satin or your seats are cotton, shouldn't really be that relevant. But we make it relevant. We make what makes us different relevant. So then everybody tries to show what makes them so different that they're not like you. Because to be like you would make them unacceptable. So your need to be connected, your need to belong, your need to be acknowledged and accepted becomes paramount. Theirs is to be acknowledged by you. Now here's the interesting part. They need you to recognize them, but they don't want to associate with you. They don't like you, but they need you. Because without you, they don't exist. Because power 
And success is an illusion. You need someone to give it to you. And you do. You spend money you don't have on things you don't need. And when that doesn't give you happiness and that sense of completeness, then you sublimate it on things you certainly shouldn't have in you, and things are going to cause you problems. And that's called self-defeating habits. You self-sabotage. And then you start looking for people to answer your questions, so you go to a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist says, yes, you're disturbed, you have depression or attention deficit uh, disorder, you, you have psychoses, neuroses, you're manic. Take these drugs. Take this electroconvulsive therapy. Take this and you'll be normal again. Get rid of all those thoughts about being unique in an individual. The whole idea of our mental health system is to make you like everyone else again. The very thing that you don't need is to be normal. Normal is sick. When someone says, I'm a normal guy, I think, whoa. <laughs> if that's contagious, stay away. Because at some point in life, you're going to wake up to that first issue, the impermanence of your life and having felt betrayed because you honored all the systems. And yet the people up at the top, they're doing all kinds of things because they no longer feel they have to live by the rules of permanency. They can live with abandon. And then we spend our life reading People magazine or watching the e-channel of all these people out there doing all these great things. People down in Mardi Gras partying, raising hell, and we're sitting there, hi Harold, hi Elizabeth, <laughs> pass the popcorn, turn the channel. What fun they're having. Yes, Harold. When did we last have fun? Harold, we've never had fun. <laughs> <laughs> then people watch. People are out there doing something different, and the more they do, the more we watch. Because we're not living our own life. We're living the life we were told to live. And when you do that, you cannot embrace your bliss, because you've disguised it. Now you know why it's so important to see at ground level where everything happens. It happens in the belief system. And look, I was very tempted myself when I, I completed my school to go back and live in my hometown because of the certainty of my friends and the things I was familiar with and the comforts I would have. And I remember, I remember being in Wheeling, a uh, little town called Catanning, Pennsylvania, and uh, near Wheeling, and tiny town. And I had taken over a job in a Singer sewing machine store there with no employees. I was it. And with little sales, I think their sales were like $400 a week. It was a depressed mining community, uh, mainly Polish miners, and they were most of them out of work. I mean, it was one of those streets you walk down the street and they got to sit on the street, and it was, you know, and everything looked old. And uh, the store was just bleak, dirty. So I, uh, I put a big sign in the window, I'm willing to fix any of your sewing machines for free. That went against store policy. <laughs> and suddenly these people started calling. I'd go out and I'd fix and then I'd say, you know, uh, what is it you know, that you're trying? Well, we've got to watch every nickel. You know, we, we, we're limited. So what I'd do is I'd say, well, I'll design you or I'll design your daughter a new dress. I'll do the pattern for free. 
And uh, so I was designing patterns and I was fixing sewing machines just to get the cells for the, you know, the notions, you know, the thread and that. And then they started buying some machines and I would do free sewing classes and all these people started coming because it was cheaper, big savings, and buying clothes and yet parents wanted to have something for their kids. So this way it was helping them and saving money. And I won all these contests. I, in fact, I won, I was the smallest store and I like 58 stores and yet I, I beat them all. <laughs> and boy, that surprised them. And so my room was a, and I had nothing to do in the town. What am I going to do in the town, right? I'm there alone, and I go to this one little room that's right on a railroad track and bleak. And I'd sit there at night, and I'd look out the window, and here'd come the trains. And I'd hear the train, and there'd just be this, a whistle in the distance. And I'm looking out into the dark and bleak and the trees. I'm thinking, God, this is depressing. This is lonely. This is terrible. Who would want this, right? And yet, every day, these people would say, well, that's kind of, you know, suffering's a part of life. I'm thinking, why? Change it. And I couldn't see why people just didn't say, let's move, right? It's like people moving to Buffalo. Why? <laughs> huh? yeah. Why? Oh, Gary, because we want one of those, you know, seven-foot winters when we freeze to death, and, you know, because sometime in the summer we might go look at the falls. That's nice. It's like, you know, living out in... You know, North Dakota. What's the point? Right? What's the point? <laughs> right? When I fly over, when I'm going and do autograph tours in some of these cities, and I'm looking down just hundreds of miles of bleak, flat landscaping where you get off the plane, you feel this, whew, you know, 60 mile an hour wind, you just chill, and I'm thinking, and they're playing in this. Bad idea. So, anyhow, I, uh, I went down to Wheeling where they had the, um, where they had the award ceremony. And on the way down, I stopped and picked up a couple guys who managed stores. And they were, I was like 20 years old, and they were in their um, 40s and 50s. And they were really depressed. And I said, what's wrong, fellas? I said, well, we didn't do so well on that drive. And, you know, at a certain point, when you stop producing, company just lets you go and get someone like you. Young hotshot comes in there, and they just got a lot of juice, a lot of energy, and they just squeeze it. And then one day, you'll be like that. And I'm thinking, it's, everything's depressing here. And I look at these guys, they're overweight, they're stressed out, they're smoking. They're nice guys, but they had no options because growing up, the belief system doesn't give you options except what you're told and you have to accept it and tolerate it. So what I found was the belief system gives you unlimited capacity to adapt to your stresses, but not to transform them. Adaptation, yes. Transformation, no. And so here I am, and with the exception of three or four of the winners, everybody else was kind of depressed. They had to be there. And they gave me like a green, ugly blazer. And, uh, and that night I, I said, I can't do this. And so I quit. And they were all stunned, absolutely stunned. I'd quit because I was now the hot shot. I said, I don't want to, I don't want to, I see the future. I don't want to be a part of it. And then I went home, and the next day I walked all around my hometown, and I went over to my uncles, and really nice guys, and I talked with them, my father's two brothers. And then I went and I spoke with my aunts, and I realized what I don't like is that the 
first day they graduated from high school was the last day of their life. They have not done anything unique, original since then. And now they look towards a retirement. And some of my buddies who were just out of high school or college for a year or two, they were talking about, well, you know, in 18 years we get our pensions. I'm thinking you're 19 years old, 20 years old, and you're talking about a pension? They already had established that there was going to be nothing in their life that was going to change. They were going to put in their time, get their pension, so now they can spend more time with their hobby or something. And that's when I came to New York. <laughs> because there'd be a lot of other fools like me here, I figured. And so going through that discomfort and disconnecting from that was painful. It was extremely painful. Because I knew that when I left, nothing would ever be the same again. And it wasn't. But it taught me a lesson about going through loneliness and sadness and realizing that I could go through that and hope that something better took its place or stay with the comfort and never know what life could really be like. As if every day was the same, like Groundhog Day, just repeated every day. Now, the next area. Which decisions do you find difficult to make? Examples, money decisions, what to buy, how much to spend, how much to save. Look, that's just on one. Having sex, what kind of sex, um, how often, not to have, why. There are consequences to everything we do and don't do. And when we are making our decision, almost always it's directly associated with how we're going to be accepted or perceived by the people around us. And that's why we have this insistent need to confess everything to everybody. There's a basic rule in life. There are no secrets. So never tell anyone anything or do anything that you don't want everyone else to know. Because no one's going to keep a confidence. Everybody has the insecurity who's in the circle of the known to confess. Only when you're out of it can you be held in, hold anything in confidence. And yet people say, oh, you can trust me. <laughs> Wrong. Because we're really not confident. That's why we keep asking other people if what we're done is right. And then when we do something wrong, we try to get them to agree that it really wasn't our fault that we did it wrong or that it's okay. And it's interesting. You can do something wrong in the known and get away with it. Do it outside of the known and they don't have any sympathy or compassion for you. you oh, you're out there, you know you, 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 you know, you made your choice, suffer with it. Very little understanding. You see, if you brought something back in, it's almost like bringing a virus back in. It's kind of interesting. No one in the alternative movement, none of the ideological movement, the nutrition movement, the women's movement, the environmental movement, human rights movement, uh, the political movement, no one in this entire world of alternative has ever been really given a form that would in any way allow them to have the respect and to change policy and direction as inside the circle of the known. And that's why when I come up with something that I consider important or even uh, can really make a major difference, and I write about it, broadcast it, investigate it, re share it, 
nothing ever happens. It's like all these great discoveries and nothing happens. And it was so frustrating for years. And then I realized that that's also true of Ralph Nader and everybody else. Nothing happens. You know, and when one of the people runs for president, even though they're intellectually and, and philosophically and practically and politically so much wiser than the idiots who are Democrats and Republicans, uh, twiddly-dee and twiddly-does, you know, who have no integrity, you know, they, they line up and say, okay, which PAC's going to give me the most money? You pharmaceutical, now you get my ear and we'll make legislation. Pesticide industry will never pass law banning pesticides. You can bet on that because you give us enough money. Medical group, now, will never have a problem. We'll put limitations how much you can get sued for if you get a bad vaccine. 67,000 lobbyists in Washington. That's who they pay attention to, and that's why they create laws and rules to protect the special interests. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows the game that voting for these people is a joke because it's a lottery. Whoever's got the most money buys themselves into office. It's not based upon integrity of hiring, you know, the highest morally directed and wise person to lead us. It's getting the most exaggerated megalomaniac you know, who has the most power behind him, who's going to represent the strongest group. And we all know that. But again, the masses never use their power. They're like Pavlovian dogs. They realize where punishment reward is and comfort is more important as a reward than the pain of truth. So universal truths and capacity to change will never be counted upon in that group. But outside, they're, they're looking and say, wake up, wake up. And it's like walk, watching people walk around dead, thinking, you're not thinking. Look what they're doing in the name of democracy or the name of freedom. Tyranny, fascism, wake up, it's your rights. People are just walking around. And then one day, they let you in by accident. In my case, it was by accident accident that I got on PBS. They didn't think anything of it. Oh, it's going to talk about nutrition. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. And suddenly the biggest turnout in their history. And who was it? It wasn't the policymakers who called in. It was the masses who had been given no direction on what they knew was right, because their doctors and scientists weren't going to say, do this, do this, exclude this, exclude that, don't do this. They weren't going to do it. They've never done it. They never would do it. Too many controls. But I did. And because I had been invited into, into the circle of the known and given a position of authority, Dr. Gary Nall, researcher, blah, 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 and suddenly lights went on. You know, here he is. And by the tens of thousands, people called and responded. They still, they're clueless. They have no idea what was going on. It was revolution right under the radar screen. <laughs> like all these changes. Now they're, and to those people, it's too late because it's gone on once, twice, three times. It's going to go on a couple more times at least. And now, now it's easier to get the very people who made those changes to make more changes. And once they start, once you start and you give a person permission to start making changes, like you don't have to eat meat, you don't have to eat bread, and you don't have to eat sugar, and they start feeling better, they're going to trust that. 
Now, if they heard me say that on BAI, they won't do anything about it. That's why you've heard me say 95% of the people listening to me on BAI don't do anything with the material. They don't. But when they hear me on, see me on PBS, they will. See how it's done? So now I can cause change because I've been invited into the known. Now, because I don't have hair down to my waist and, you know, I'm act and look and grow up like most of them, I'm not alien. And yet the very people who could have done things in the past alienated the very people who were willing to listen to them, but they weren't willing to be like them enough to be associated. And they'd go in with the long hair and, and they would vulgarize their message and so nobody wanted to hear it. And they were foolish. And some lessons. And so now we have probably half a million to a million Americans this year who are going to make change who otherwise wouldn't. And that can grow because they can influence. See, once you start doing something and you've done good, then it's okay for others to take a lesson from you. As they've taken negative lessons, now they can take a positive lesson because it's within the circle of the known. They still stay connected to the known, you see? Because Fritzhoff Capra and a lot of Marilyn Ferguson, they all idealists, absolutely, but they were clueless about how people really change. And I've seen now how these, this change occurs. I see why people don't do good things with good information, why they do stupid things with bad information, when they're smart enough to make the distinction. And you've seen it also. Smart people making bad choices. It's the paradigm. If you were presented with a unique opportunity, would you be prepared to engage in it? How many times in life has opportunity availed itself, but you weren't prepared, so you had to pass? Ever happened to you? Yeah. So the one thing you can start doing now is prepare yourself for anything, because then you're going to create opportunity. The more prepared you are, the more open you are, the more things will come to you. And by the very nature of excluding yourself from wanting to participate because of fear that you would be too incomplete in your participation and fail in your participation, of whatever it is, then you sit on the sidelines of life and you become the passive spectator looking at everybody else engaging and saying, gee, was that looks like so much fun. Why am I not doing it? Because look at you. You can't go run a marathon. You're 800 pounds. So we must prepare ourselves emotionally, spiritually, physically, intellectually, creatively. We must take every part of our life that needs to be sharpened and start the sharpening process, focusing, uncluttering, so that opportunity is there, we're ready to go. We're ready to match it, meet it, embrace it, create it, engage it. When selecting a goal, any goal, first, Ask yourself, was this your goal or was this goal chosen for you? Because as often as not up to this point, the goals you have focused on, they were someone else's goal that they gave you that you honored and took on. You've got to relinquish and surrender everyone else's goal for you. You'll never find bliss following someone else's. Do you feel loyal to the goal that you're engaged in? An honest loyalty. 
Do you feel committed to it? What do you hope to change if you succeed? In other words, if we have a goal, it's because we want to change something, right? What is it we want to change? What will the goal, achieving it, allow us to accomplish? Because if you don't know it, then you shouldn't be doing it. If I'm going to select something to do, it's because I want to change something, either in the process of doing it or the completion of it. Otherwise, we can just put our energy into something and in the end, we say, okay, I did it. So what? What's the big deal? Meaninglessness. If it's not meaningful, don't do it. Have you ever attempted this goal in the past? Did you fail at it? Why did you fail? What was missing? And what circumstances are different this time to help you not fail this time? What circumstances are you willing to change this time so that you won't fail this time? See, a lot of the people out there don't really have goals. Winning the lottery is their ticket out, and that's, that's a long shot. Outside of that, it's just the same every day. That's why we, we can almost program television and, and things based upon people's frustration and boredom uh, and sublimating that frustration and boredom because they don't have any goals. Most people's goals are relinquished after graduating from high school or college unless they're going up in that hierarchical level. Now, once they get there, then the goal is solidified. Then all their energy is in protecting what they've accomplished. Protecting what you've got uses an enormous amount of energy. Next, in order to achieve your goal, you must have a long-term strategy. Pace yourself with small incremental steps. Be very patient. Do not allow yourself to be distracted by other goals. And what people frequently are today is they're distracted. We even go out of our way to be distracted. Because if something is distracting us, then we can always use the excuse that we don't have the time. Who's got the time? I don't have the time. Conrad, do you have the time? Never. Never. See? Too busy. Too many things. Things all over the place. I got this, I got that, I got this. So I can't. Don't blame me if I never get anything done. All right? Well, okay, we're not going to blame it. We're also going to say, don't make any more excuses. Take one thing, one single thing, and that's it. Nothing else. And make it the thing you really want that will mean something when you achieve it. And take that one meaningful thing, put that in your life, and do not allow any other distraction. It is the distraction of multiple goals that undermines you. But also, it is self-defeating. At one level, we know that if we take on more than what we can do, we're going to limit ourselves. So then we can say, look, too much to do. Now, don't blame me. Too many things. Okay? So we are going to say now one thing. When you have used love to meet a challenge, and to overcome an obstacle, you are getting close to your bliss. Do you understand that? Because what do we normally use to overcome obstacles? Fear, anger, uncertainty, envy, jealousy. Think how many times you've been motivated by jealousy. Put energy into something you don't want to lose. 
But what if instead of that you simply had love? Because you know what love will do to a problem? That's not a rhetorical statement. I, Transform. It transforms your reaction to it. A farmer from Nebraska and a farmer from Russia. Let them show what they have in common and they wouldn't want to fight. It's hard to fight someone when you got love. It's easy when you've got anger. That's the power of love. And love has to come from you. You have to keep bringing it up and allowing it. If you're bored, is it because something is boring or are you boring? Huh? What do you like when you're boring? Yeah? You're boring. Because when you're bored, you are boring. So what you thought you were bored at, you become as much a problem. You just become an extension, right? Watch people in New York who go to a party downtown. And uh, I've seen it so many times. They go in and they look around and all they see really is, what's a party? Party's people, right? So if the people aren't interesting, they're boring. So you look around and you well, this is boring. Well, what makes you any different than those people? Are you saying, hey, come over to me. I'm interesting. I'm exciting. I'll engage you. No, it's just all these people looking, you know, for someone to entertain them. So if someone isn't paying attention to them in meaningless conversation, then they're bored. And hence, they're as boring as anyone else. If you start getting bored with things, it's because you're not engaging yourself. You should never be bored. I have, uh, down on my ranch, I have, uh, I have a lemur. And this lemur, this lemur plays with everything. And it never gets bored. It's always doing something. And then you look at the turtle, and the turtle looks like it's bored. <laughs> turtle doesn't do a whole lot. But the active little animals are always looking for something. And the moment you go in, it'll jump up on you, go through your hair and look into your ears and look down. Every place they can, they, they've got to explore everything because it's fun. They're excited by life. And people are so much into ruts and predictable patterns that they have to get anything that excites them outside of themselves. Hence television, movies, you know, dining out instead of cooking in. People cease when they're in that predictable pattern to be interesting. And most people, unfortunately, are not interesting. I mean, you hang around with most people and you find out, gee whiz, this person really is boring. <laughs> in which case, you either carry it all yourself or you engage. Now, two boring people can become unboring, but to do that, they have to take some risks. And most people are not willing to take the risk. The Sanskrit word for duty is dharma, which also means what? Teaching and truth. So if we honor our duty as a human being, isn't part of that duty to teach the love that we have for our own life, the interest we have in all things, 
and how connected we are even though we have been conditioned to believe that we're so uniquely different. It is what makes us common as human beings that gives an affinity for one person to another no matter what their age difference or race, religion. So if you relate as your human quality, then the duty of life is being honored. Your dharma is being honored. You're sharing the truth that we are all more common to one another, and more equal than what we would like to believe. Now then look at it back to the paradigm. Look at the pattern of behavior. The people exist in that circle of the known. The people on top want to buy a house or an apartment or clothes or cars or furniture or go on vacations where you can't go. They don't want to be like you because if they're like you, if they hang out at Jones Beach, you know, if they eat in local restaurants, if they you know, wear clothes like you wear, then how would you know that they're successful? You wouldn't because these are the ways we show our success by our, the extension of what we can afford. So they are taking that which is a duty to share something that bonds you and they're separating the bonds. Hence, they're not honoring their basic karmic duty. They're not honoring the duty of truth. Their truth is an individual truth. It's not a universal truth. Their truth is, I'm more successful, I'm wiser, I'm more powerful, therefore I'm not like you. And I say, take away the titles. Take away what you've succeeded in. Put you in a room with any other person and you're just very similar to them. Only the personality is different. The life force is the same. So understand that we have been living a game. And the game is that we try to make ourselves so different that we like to think we are more exclusive and therefore have more value and should be appreciated greater than other people. You know, like the men's society. I once went to the, one of their meetings. And I was just offended by it. I was offended by the idea that an IQ should make you feel that you're special and elitist. It was just, it was dumb. And, and my conversations with them did not impress me that these people were more enlightened. So we have to take what is uniquely our gift, which we all have a gift, and say, gee whiz, I have a gift. What is the value of a gift if it is kept to yourself? The value of any gift is to share it. So the person that is truly a teacher is sharing, and they're sharing their gift. So the wise person shares their gift and teaches you what they know in whatever way they can. And that brings people together, and that brings you up to your bliss. Again, look at the barriers we're removing. We're peeling off all these layers that keep us. The bliss is here. Our conditioning is here. And we have to remove these. How much of our time do we use to affect and change others versus doing something for ourselves? You ever try to change other people? You bet, right? What right do you have to do that? None. The energy that you put into another person, you should put into yourself. If someone asks you for help, we have an obligation, a moral obligation to help them. But more often than not, people are not asking for help. We're insisting that they take it. And then, depending upon the association of that person in our lives, they feel obligated to accept what we have to give because they may be here and we may be here.
They may be the dominant person in that relationship. But as equals, and that's how we should treat people, if they haven't asked, then you have no right to insist. And take the energy that you're giving that direction and bring it back into yourself. You have to be responsible for yourself. Next. When moments are all that we possess, how do we make the selection of what to do with that moment? Think again. If moments are all that we possess, and that's all you have are moments, right? Then how do you decide what to make that moment be? Think of that. We can focus on what's important or we can distract ourselves by the unimportant with the moment. Now question, how much of your time is spent on unimportant moments? Most of the time. Because when you're not doing what is essential, you're doing the non-essential. When you're not living in the moment so you can have the moment, then you're living in a moment that you will not need to remember because it was not essential. When you think back of all those, well, let me just put it in a little, little different construct. When offering anything that we have, it is not the size or even the significance of the offering that's important as its intention. So often in life, individuals will not contribute what they could because they think, well, I mean, I'm just, I don't have anything that significant. I mean, those people and can give more, they're wiser, richer. You know, what do I have? I'm just a nobody. Not true. Yes, there are people that when they give something, it's a big gift of some kind, and everybody then says, well, if they've done it, why should we? We can't compare ourselves to them. Go to any place in Japan, India, Indonesia, where there are lots of poor peasants. And every time you go past a Buddha shrine, you'll see something that was of value to that poor person that they gave. Food, when they're hungry, they'll give. They gave it to honor the Buddha, so they in turn can be more Buddha-like. It is not the size of the gift or its significance. It is the intention. So if your intention is pure, the size of what you give in life to another is not what's relevant. So everyone then becomes equal in intent. You understand that? So never again look at the idea that you can't give something, help, service, whatever it may be, because what do you have? As long as you have the intent to help, that's enough. Now back to the other concept. Living in the moment allows us to immortalize the pleasure of another's company and the enduring emotions and energy that is being shared. These are brief interludes, and they must be enjoyed while they're happening, and when we allow them to occur. Now, no two moments are ever the same. 
Soon enough, we will miss the moments we shared, but we must try to recapture that moment, as that can never be. So when we say, God, that was a great time I had, I want to recreate the embrace, the kiss, the great meal, the sunset, you cannot. No special moment can ever be recreated, ever. So don't try. But by putting yourself open to the moment, you'll allow another one to take its place. And the next moment could be equally as special as the last one. And at some point in life, when you're quiet, you realize it is not meant to be recaptured, but to be replaced and the present and be prepared and open and vulnerable for the next moment. But what we do is we enjoy something, something that touches us, something that resonates to our essential self, something that manifests in bliss. And we say, this is so good. It is, let it go. It's still with you permanently, the energy you shared and the memory of that energy. That will be for you with eternity. But if you stay focused on trying to recapture it, you close yourself off to engaging in another equally unique and precious moment. You must be prepared for the next moment. And to be prepared for the moment, you must surrender the moment you're in for the next moment. So you're not living in the past. Not your pain, not your suffering, not your joy, not your bliss. You're present. Present allows you to have another blissful moment or another painful moment, but at least another moment. And that too will pass and let it go. And in time, if you've done this, your life will be filled with thousands of special moments that you can, can recall over and over again and feel the joy emanating because you're present. Now when you're present, you'll make no excuses for the dreams you have not lived because each moment becomes capable of manifesting your dreams. You're prepared for it. You're in the moment. You're living in motion like life. You're not stagnant. You're not fixed. You're not bounded and surrounded by beliefs. You're not seeking other people's approval. You're not fearing failure. You're not, you don't have multiple projects. You're not distracting yourself with unessential time. Your time is only good because it's essential to you. So everything is in balance. And when everything is in that kind of balance, then the moment resonates and you feel it. You wake up ready for it. And most people are never ready for their life. They were earlier in life when they were led to believe they could be anything, feel anything, do anything. And then they were told after high school or college graduation, well, that was just because you were a kid. Now get serious because now you've gotten your membership in the circle of the known and then you take your place in a hierarchical structure and that's where you stay for life. You've got to get out of that structure. You've got to break the structure, break the need to be in that structure to recreate the autonomous self. When we have that kind of freedom, we understand our emotions and attitudes will cause people to notice us. You'll always notice a happy person. There are a lot of sad people, depressed people, melancholy people, so many that you no longer even notice them. Happy people are noticed. Positive people are noticed. 
people engaged in life are noticed because your energy is so different. When you feel bad, angry, or helpless, how often do you blame the world? Yet the world isn't what it's about. It's not allowing the uniqueness of yourself to be present so you can make choices that can make a difference in the world. Remember, we can all make a difference, but we can't make a difference out there till we make a difference in here. So the journey of changing the world starts with the first surrender of your fear to be who you are. Every human being has bliss inside of them waiting to be recognized and embraced. The danger of embracing bliss is once you have, you'll never want to go back to a non-bliss. Why would you go back to the pain and limitation of a life through sublimation, complacency, just to belong, just to be recognized by others as okay? That is no longer acceptable. And only when you step out of the circle of the known and you go through all of the intrepidation, you go through the fear, you go through the, the loneliness, the achiness of the uncertainty of what will take its place, when you just see a big void, but you, the void can have bright lights and it can be radiating with, with, an, with a desire, come on in. And if you do, then you're the architect. You make it whatever you want. Because if you don't do that, think of the option. What's the option of not changing? becoming stagnant like a pool. And what about not seeing the special and sacred in others? Then you become cynical and alienated. You fear others. What becomes of the person who cannot see the beauty in all other peoples? Then they look ugly. And what you think is ugly and you fear, you will not associate with, you won't learn from, you won't share with. The Dharma is broken. So when you wake up one day and you're living your bliss, then everything is possible because you're complete in yourself. That's it for tonight. Thank you.